Just got off the phone to Orlando. I talked to him last night. We didn't have any sunshine today, and they've had a lot of rain out there, and so the ground is is pretty wet and muddy, and there's more rain uh, expected. Even though it's not heavy rain, it's just not no chance to dry out, and more rain expected tonight and then uh, on uh, on Saturday. So what we're going to do is we'll just postpone the picnic until April, but this time we'll... Um, pick a primary date and a secondary date so if one if the first one rains out we can go to the second one because we've had too many of these rainouts. gee okay so that's the first announcement second announcement is that back in well either back in the back but i think um, i keep wanting to say that but bryce said go to the website and sign up uh, for the email distribution list we have uh, go to the westhoustonbiblechurch.org website uh, where it's, you've got a tab for about the church, drop-down menu, and you can sign up there, and that way you make sure you get the email announcements. For example, uh, we will be sending out an email tonight or in the morning telling people that the picnic's been canceled. So that way um, we can communicate. There's also other things that come up here and there. Uh, every now and then I put together something related to something in the Scripture. Uh, sometimes we put together other types of things that go out as announcements. So uh, you need to be on the uh, on the list, especially if there's something that happens due to inclement weather that, and we need to cancel, then that information gets uh, gets sent out. I think those are the only two announcements. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. We need to be spiritually prepared to study God's Word throughout each day. We need to keep short accounts, and that means that we need to confess sin. And that is a matter of silent prayer. Sin is sin. A lot of people have crazy definitions of sin. Sin is anything that violates the character of God. And I really can't sin against you and you can't sin against me because sin is a violation of God's character. So that is why David, after having committed adultery, trying to cover it up, uh, conspiring to have uh, Bathsheba's husband Uriah uh, put into the hottest area of combat in the battle so he'd be killed, all of these different sins that impacted a lot of people directly in the nation as a whole, he said, against you and you only have I sinned. And that's, that's why, it's because sin is a violation of God's standards, of God's character. So we confess sin, and God instantly forgives us and cleanses us not only of those sins but all unrighteousness, and that restores us to a walk by the Spirit, and enables us to grow spiritually and move forward. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will 
open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's just a great privilege and a great act of grace on your part to have brought us into relationship with you through Christ's work on the cross, that by his death we have redemption. The price has been paid, the penalty's been paid, and by believing and trusting in him and him alone, we have eternal life. We're brought into your royal family, adopted as heirs and sons. And Father, this is beyond The value of this is beyond anything we can imagine. Father, we are brought into an organization, an organism rather, in this dispensation called the church. And this too is unique in all of history. And Father, we pray that as church age believers, we might come to understand and appreciate all that you've given us and provided for us, and that this might be a central a central priority in our lives to grow closer to you, to walk with you, to know your word, and to gradually be more set apart to service to you. And as we study tonight, we pray you'll help us to understand at least the conclusions, the main ideas of what we're covering, if not all of the details, that we can understand how we are to be fed and matured as believers. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. In our study of 1 Peter, we have been going through uh, additional studies, sub-series on the church. The technical word in theology is ecclesiology from the Greek word ekklesia. And this is just sort of a survey. I'm not going through a lot of in-depth on a lot of things. I'm going a little more in-depth tonight. But we've been looking the past several weeks about the meaning of the word pastor. A lot of different people have different ideas, a lot of wrong ideas, a lot of muddled ideas and confused ideas about what a pastor is and what is, quote, pastoral. And if you have the gift of pastor-teacher and somebody says, oh, that's so pastoral, you always want, what do you mean by that? And everybody has different ideas. So we've been drilling down on this a little bit the last few weeks by going through the Old Testament use of the literal meaning and then its imagery, how it's used metaphorically to refer to leaders. And, And we'll look at those conclusions again before long tonight. Because that forms the background of understanding the word in the New Testament. And the word pastor, to refer to a church leader, is only used one time in the New Testament. But we we come out of a Baptistic tradition, and in the Baptistic tradition, we have, I mean, the, the key leader in the church has been identified as a pastor, and that's been pretty normal. If you go to other traditions, then you may refer to them as bishops, or you may refer to them as elders, but but within sort of a Baptistic background, that, that one term has, has taken over, and there's nothing wrong with that. We have two passages we've been looking at. The passage we've been studying, where we stopped, is in 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2, 
where Peter says, the elders who are among you I exhort, who am a fellow elder, and he uses the noun presbyteros to refer to elders. And he says to the elders that they are to shepherd. That's the command there. It's an aorist imperative which makes it a priority. You can use a present tense with an imperative, and that means it's just sort of standard operating procedure, or you can use an aorist. Now, they're not contradictory to one another. Sometimes you just want to punch it up a little bit, and so that's when you would use an aorist imperative that this is a priority. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseer. So you have these three words, a presbyteros for the elder, and they're addressed by that title. Their role is to shepherd, and they are also to manage, to oversee, and this brings an administrative aspect into focus. You have the same collection of words in Acts 20.17 and then in 28 as Paul is addressing the elders of the church of Ephesus there. They're called presbyteros or elders in verse 17. And then he says the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episkopos. And then instead of using an imperative, he says, uses an infinitive to express their purpose. Their purpose is to shepherd. To feed. So this is why we set this up, and we went through a study the last few weeks trying to understand what this metaphor means when we come to uh, the New Testament. The questions we've been asking as we've moved through this study is, first of all, to look at the terminology in terms of the church, where that comes from, seeing that this the technical meaning is in the New Testament, that the church began. The second question, at the day of Pentecost, you don't have a church in the Old Testament. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, talking about something in the future, using a future tense, I will build my church. It wasn't there yet. He was going to build it in the future. And then we went through a study, a survey of Acts, to see how leadership developed there, seeing that there's a transition from apostles to apostle and elders. And then we looked at how leadership terms were used and developed in the early part of the church age, developing into three basic forms of church government, the Episcopal form of government, which is Uh, usually connected to Roman Catholic Church, Greek Orthodox, Anglican, or Episcopal Church, and the Methodist Church, and there's a few other congregations who use that. Um, The uh, elder form, the Presbyterian form of government, and then the congregational form of government. And we're on the fifth question, talking about what are the scriptural terms used for biblical leaders. We've looked at the others, but the primary one is about the shepherd. So with these three terms, distinguishing them, the term elder is the primary term emphasizing the office, but the idea of being older isn't older physically, although I think that there is a, a, an importance to some age factors. Uh, you just learn more because of experience, but it primarily focuses on spiritual maturity. And I say that because a church I pastored in the, uh, uh, I pastored two churches in the 80s. One was a congregational church, and we had a lot of older people in that congregation. The mean age was about 60 and But they didn't have a lot of those leaders, didn't have a lot of wisdom. They didn't have a lot of spiritual maturity. There were one or two that did. Uh, then I went from there to pastor a church in Dallas, 
and they had an elder rule government, but uh, the men there were all young. Uh, they weren't really spiritually mature, and and they needed a little more, you know, another 10 or 15 years of life, but the oldest guy in the church was only 42, so it was a little hard to get older men. Uh, but uh, back then, this was in the mid-'80s, Bible churches were just popping up all over the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex, Houston too, and baby boomers were all getting just into that mid 30s to early 40s age, and so there were many congregations that just didn't have anybody that was much older. Now we have the opposite problem; we don't have a lot of people that are much younger. So, elder primarily emphasizes spiritual maturity. Bishop, the function of the office, he's to oversee the congregation, and then the pastor, the role and responsibility, which is to feed the sheep. And as we looked at these illustrations from the Old Testament, this primarily emphasizes taking them to pasture, to feed them, provide feed, feed and food and water, and nourishment. So that's brought over in terms of, of the nourishment factor uh, in the church, but it also has a certain element of leadership, uh, taking them to where the good feed is. So they are the ones that lead the congre- congregation. And then that brings us to Ephesians 4.11. And Ephesians 4.11 must be understood a little bit in context and so we're going to start off just reading the context, making a couple of comments on 4, 8 through 10 before we get into and identify the main issues here. So we have uh, Ephesians Ephesians 4, uh, chapter 8, I mean, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 8, and this is a quote from Psalm 68, 18. Uh, therefore, he says, that indicates, you know, notice this little statement here. Therefore, he says, who's the he? The he refers to God. Psalm 68, who wrote Psalm 68? David, David a human author. But God, the Holy Spirit, identifies who the divine author is, that, that God's the ultimate author. Just these little things like that uh, mean a lot. Therefore, he says, when he, that's not clear from the Old Testament, but there it refers to God, but here it's going to be applied to Jesus. So it's another passage that emphasizes the deity of Christ, where you take a passage in the Old Testament that clearly focuses on Yahweh as the he, and then it is applied here to Jesus. So that indicates the full deity of Jesus. When he ascended on high, which happens 40 days after the, uh, after the resurrection, he ascended to heaven. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So 9 and 10 are just parenthetical to the main thought. The main thought is at the end of 4.8, he gave gifts to men, and then that's picked up in verse 11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Now, one of the questions that always arises here is that if you count them, you've got apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Those are the five nouns. So are we talking about five gifts? Are we talking about 
five people. Are we talking about four gifts? Just how do we enumerate this? So here are the questions that people ask, and I've been asked recently questions about this. And in pursuing the commentaries, it's just really a spread of of opinions. Now, these are well-read, thought-out, scholarly opinions, but they're still a spread. So the questions are, do these refer to spiritual gifts or gifted men? Now, what happens is that in a number of commentaries, they'll slide back and forth between those terms without clearly defining either one or talking about how the concept of spiritual gifts relates to being to a spiritually gifted person. Okay, so which is it? And then some think it refers to the office. And another question is, well, are these four, or are there five spiritual gifts? It looks like you have five nouns there, so those are five spiritual gifts. But then we hear a lot of people, our church included, refer to the last grouping, pastors and teachers, as the pastor-teacher, pastor-teacher. And there's a lot of debate over that. Is that an accurate translation and understanding of what is stated there and why? And that gets complex, and I'm going to try to make it real simple, but I think we need to go through this for a couple of different reasons. One is we have some pretty educated people who listen, and they ask really detailed questions. Sometimes uh, there's a lot of misinformation here on both sides of, of the issue, and so I'll bring uh, go through that. And so these are some of the basic questions that, that we have to ask, and as such, we have to look at this particular passage. So the main question is, the bottom of the middle to the bottom of the slide, are pastors and teachers two separate gifts? Are they one gift com- where it's a combination, or is it one person with two gifts? Now, those kind of questions probably never occurred to many of you to, to ask those questions, but those that's how you get into clarity here. One of the questions that should come up, if this is two gifts, pastor and teacher, we know from Romans chapter 13 that teaching is an independent gift. But this is the only place where the noun pastor is used. And so that brings up the question, is pastor ever mentioned as an independent gift? By that, I mean one that is not tightly associated or grouped with another gift. And if pastor is a gift that is different from teaching, how does it differ? Remember, as we looked at the shepherding metaphor from the Old Testament and as it's applied to Jesus and how it's used in the Gospels and New Testament. The shepherd leads, guides, he feeds. How does he guide? How does he lead? Primarily, he leads through the Word. Primarily, he guides through the Word. He feeds. That is clearly the teaching or instruction of the Word. He brings security to people from the enemies. Uh, that teach false teaching, and that is done through the teaching the Word. Uh, he restores. That comes, the Word has a restorative value. God restores us, protects us, and corrects us. All of these come through primarily the study of the Word. 
So the question is, if you're going to say that there's a gift of pastor that is not the same as gift of teacher, you have to be able to describe how it really differs. Nobody asks those questions. Therefore, nobody that I ran across really tries to answer them. few places you find some uh, elementary attempts, but not really well done. Now, we get some guidance from Scripture here. Because Ephesians 4.12, after we have these lifts of these spiritual gifts, and I think they are spiritual gifts that God has given to the church, they're given for a purpose. Ephesians 4.12 says they're for the equipping of the saints. That's every believer in the congregation. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. So the primary purpose is to equip the saints for two things. First of all, to do the work of ministry. Ministry is serving God and serving others. So it's not just an end game of collecting a lot of knowledge and information about theology and doctrine in the Bible, but it ultimately is to prepare us and strengthen us so that we can all serve in terms of our own spiritual gifts within the body of Christ. So we're equipping the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying, that is for the maturing or the building up of the body of Christ. Now, the word that is translated equipping is an interesting word. It is a compound word in the Greek. It is, the root is artizo, which means basically this idea of training, preparation, equipping, but it's intensified with a preposition, kata. And so it has the idea of training or equipping people. The Oxford English Dictionary defines training as teaching a person a skill or a type of behavior through regular practice and instruction. Regular is more than once a week. Okay? I just have to put that in there. Regular. You don't learn a skill by doing it once a week. You develop a skill and habit patterns by doing it every day. Ah, we have another good verse, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God. That's the meaning of the Greek theopneustos for inspiration. Breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching. That's what doctrine is. It's just instruction or teaching. So first of all, there's the giving of information or instruction or teaching for reproof. Well, when we hear God's instruction, we're reproved. You're, we hear God says, you're not doing it right. Now, that doesn't go well today because there's a lot of people who just don't want to hear from anybody that says that when they're living the life the way they want to, that it might be wrong. But that's what the scriptures do. They tell us where we're wrong, where our thinking is wrong, where our opinions are wrong, and where our lifestyle is wrong. For correction... It tells us the way we should go. Not only that you're doing X, Y, and Z, and that's wrong, but you need to be doing A, B, and C because that's right. And for instruction in righteousness, that is living a life that is consistent with the character of God. For the purpose that the man of God, that is the believer, who is growing, will be complete, will be fully prepared 
thoroughly equipped. And this is another word. This is also built on artizo. It's ex artismos. Okay, cat artismos was the first word. This is ex artismos. It's ex plus the root. And it means to be completely equipped, which has the idea of supplying someone with everything they need for a purpose. And our purpose is to grow and mature spiritually and to to serve God and to glorify him in every aspect of our life. So we take that and we go back and we see that that's what the purpose of the gifts is. And the gift of, of apostle and prophet were temporary gifts at the beginning of the church age. Then you have evangelists. And most people think that the gift of evangelism is to go do evangelism. That may be a secondary aspect of someone who has a gift of evangelism, but what this passage says is the primary ministry of the person with the gift of evangelism is to train others in the body of Christ to do evangelism. They are to equip the saint. We always think of that in reference to the pastor and teacher, but this, the text says, is also for the evangelist, for the uh, apostle, for the prophet, and for the evangelist and the pastor and teacher to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now let's go back to our passage. We get into the passage here, and it describes these five nouns. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, and teachers. Now, I've underlined the word some there because that is an attempt to translate a couple of words that are in the Greek that don't really mean that, but that's trying to get to the sense of the grammar. So we have this phrase, and notice there's a sum before apostles, there's a sum before prophets, there's a sum before evangelists, and there's a sum before pastors, but no sum before teachers. Now, English grammar doesn't work the way Greek grammar did, but they're trying to convey this, that there's something in the Greek that identifies each category in a list. But that which identifies the last category is only used one time, and there's two nouns that follow it, which indicates they're grouped together by this sum. Now, that, just hold on to that. We'll get into the details in a minute. So the issue that has come up is that the noun pastors and the noun teachers are governed in the Greek by one article. We've got an example up there from some other scripture. You, if, we, if I were talking and I were to say, the God and the Savior, the in English is a definite article. So you have a definite article before God and a definite article before Savior, and that would indicate probably two different people. But several times in Scripture, at least two verses, we have the phrase, the God and Savior, which references one person. And in the Greek, we look at this, there's approximately 80 times when you have this, this kind of a structure in the grammar. 
Now, what I want you to notice, when you have this, the two nouns are not synonyms. They refer to the same person. That's really important to understand that. A lot of times when this is taught, that gets lost. It's the idea there, if somebody is misusing this rule, if somebody is misusing this rule, then what they would say is, uh, is that God and Savior are synonyms. God equals Savior. But that's not what this is saying. It was saying that these two separate nouns both refer to the same person. Now, we'll have this slide later on, but what I'm showing here is that in the Greek, this word some that's in the English is translated first by this word men, and then following it, it's translated by this word de. And you have three uses of de. Now, this is called a, are you ready for this? This is called a men-de construction. How creative. But it's amazing how few people, grammarians, really get into the nuts and bolts of this particular issue. And I think this is the most important issue grammatically here. And so we'll come back to this in a minute. But what this says is it, it, it separates out these particular categories. For example, in the, in the parable of the sower, you have the seed, seed is sown and the seed produces, and the fourth seed produces some tenfold, some thirtyfold, some fiftyfold, some a hundredfold. That sum represents this kind of a list. Now, most of the time in this phrase, when you have a menda, it's just on the one hand this, but on the other hand that. Now, I didn't even learn that much in, in Greek because this usually isn't even translated. And, but its significance is that in when it's, you have more than one de, is it's identifying each different category in a list. And what that means is the way this is structured, apostles a category, prophet is a category, evangelist is a category, and pastor and teacher are tied together as the same category. All right? Now, the other thing that comes along is that because this first word, tous, is an article in the Greek, the, you only have one before a noun, and then you have a conjunction and, and then you have another noun, that when you have this kind of a construction, where it's article, noun, conjunction, noun, that the two nouns refer to the same person, the same thing. That is called the Granville-Sharp rule. Now, we're going to talk a lot about the Granville-Sharp rule, but you're going to say, well, what does that mean, Granville-Sharp? Well, that was his name. Granville Sharp was quite an interesting individual, and I thought I'd just point out a few things about him because, you know, in this age of snowflake men and girly men, we don't have men like this anymore. This was, you had a lot of men like this in his generation, and uh, he was, he was significant. He w lived a life, and I'm reading this from 
the, the published version of Dan Wallace's uh, uh, doctoral dissertation called Granville Sharp's Canon, that's his means rule, and its kin, semantics and significance. And so he's got a, and there's no real, there's no biography that I've ever run across of Granville Sharp. So I learned some things reading this. I've read other things about Granville Sharp, but this is interesting. He states, Granville Sharp led a life characterized by a blend of piety, social conscience, scholarship, and Christian grace. Now, the first thing that comes to your mind is this guy must have gone to school a lot. Wrong. This guy just wanted to learn. That he was born in 1735 in England. He came from a family that was well-educated, well-taught. His grandfather was the um, uh, Archbishop of York. His father was well-educated, and um, it was Dr. Thomas Sharp. But he was the third son. First son gets most of the goodies. Second son gets almost all the rest. And third son, well, he just almost has to fend for himself. And that's pretty much the way it was with Granville. Uh, Eventually in life, his uh, older brothers really made it possible for him to do what he did. one of his um, brothers was an engineer inventor, and the other one was a surgeon, and they both uh, made a lot of money which helped to support him in his endeavors later on. When he was 14 years old, he was apprenticed to a London linen draper. So he just had a minimal education. He had no training whatsoever in language or linguistics and never learned another, had not learned any other language. But he was hungry for knowledge. By seven, he was a believer. By 1758, both of his parents had died, and so he got a job in the ordnance office. You know what ordnance is? That's making munitions. So he's working for the ordnance office in the government and was a clerk there, and during this time, he taught himself Greek and Hebrew, and so that by the time that he was approximately 25 years of age, he wrote a book dealing with Old Testament textual criticism. He read a paper written by the foremost Hebrew scholar of the day, named Benjamin Kennecott, who was about to publish a Hebrew Bible with listing all the Hebrew variants. But the way he did it would have been obscure for a reader to understand, and so Granville Sharp, who's got no no formal education whatsoever, went to him and convinced him that the way to do it was to put the text from the best manuscript in the Hebrew Bible, and then its footnotes put in the alternate readings. That format is followed to this day. So here's this guy who's untrained. He's just a a hard worker, and he's taught himself Greek and Hebrew to a level of high proficiency, and he convinces the foremost Hebrew scholar of the right way to set up his, his, uh, his Bible. So that's just phenomenal. He wrote a number of um, of significant books, 
But one of the most significant had to do with what his real passion was in life, and that was in defeating the slavery and the slave trade. He uh, was involved in a number of different cases involving uh, involving slaves and setting them free, and ultimately he was responsible for ending slavery in England, and he worked with William Wilberforce, whose, most, whose name is most associated with ending the slave trade. But uh, Granville died around 1813 or 1814. It wasn't until the 1830s that the law ending the slave, slave trade was passed. So he was vitally instrumental in that. He wrote several treatises on government, and the role of government, especially in relation to understanding issues on on slavery. And so he had a lot of correspondence and became friends through correspondence with men like Dr. Benjamin Rush of Philadelphia, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, and John Jay, who was the first Supreme Court justice and also signer of the Declaration, I believe, uh, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams. Uh, he also had a lot of correspondence with John Wesley, William Wilberforce, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and General Lafayette in France, among many others. So he had quite an arena of influence. He became a, a, a his writings were extremely influential on the founding fathers of America. When Benjamin Franklin came to England in the summer of 1774, Sharp gave him 250 copies of a tract he had written called A Declaration of the People's Natural Rights to a Share in the Legislature, which is the fundamental principle of the British Constitution. Uh, Franklin sent it back to Boston, and they printed 7,000 copies, which were sold out almost immediately. And it's interesting, but a lot of the verbiage, a lot of the words, a lot of the phrases that are in that tract showed up in the Declaration of Independence. You can't draw a straight line connection, but it was extremely uh, influential. So he is instrumental in ending slavery in England and ending the slave trade. And he also wrote a number of works on um, on Greek grammar. Now, I don't have a copy, because that would be pretty expensive to have a copy of his original work, but somebody Xeroxes, Tom Wright in the congregation, a number of years ago, uh, Xerox this 64-page, 64-65 pages called The Remarks on the Uses of the Definitive Article in the Greek Text. They never had short titles back then. Remarks on the uses of the definitive article in the Greek text of the New Testament containing many proofs of the divinity of Christ. So, that's it. Well, well uh, documented. Now, we're going to get into the rule in just a minute. This has been controversial because, like I said, it's been abused and it has been... Uh, it has been misused by many pastors who should have known better. When I went to seminary, one of my classmates was a guy by the name of Dan Wallace. 
Dan already had four years. Dan's very, very bright. Dan had already had four years at Biola, where he had majored in Greek. So he came into Dallas Seminary with more knowledge of Greek than the average PHM that graduates from Dallas. And so he was doing advanced PhD-level study in Greek, while the rest of us were just trying to figure out the alphabet and how it worked. So that meant that there, at that time he had already started to specialize for his master's thesis and later his dissertation. I can't remember which one was which um, at this point, but it was on Granville Sharp's rule. And I remember one time when I was in my probably third year at Dallas, we used to have what they called brown bag lunches. And this would be set up in one of the big auditoriums. It was about maybe two times the size of this congregation, maybe a little more. Uh, one of the professors, we, everybody would just bring their lunch in a brown paper bag, and we'd sit there and eat our lunch ba- uh, and, um, and balance our tablets. We did not, I don't mean like an iPad. I mean like a legal-sized pa- tablet. And trying to scribble down as many notes as we could while we were listening to a professor talk about some specific issue. And so Dan did a work, workshop one lunch on the Granville Sharp Rule, and that was the first time I really began to understand that there were some some problems, some issues, some misunderstandings and difficulties with the Granville Sharp Rule. And he points out in his analysis that about uh, that almost every person who tries to argue that pastor and teacher refer to the same person does so on the basis of the Granville Sharp rule. And they're wrong. They're dead wrong. Granville Sharp, we'll look at it in a minute, does not apply. Problem is, Dan never addresses the Mendeh. In fact, here is a copy of his, he's written a very, very good grammar called Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics came out about maybe 19, 20 years ago, and it's well laid out. It's much more usable than a lot of grammars, but it has some flaws. Now, I don't teach through this grammar. I've worked through it on my own, but I've talked to Greek professors who have, and Dan has some peculiarities in his theology. He is lordship. He has some views of the church and ecclesiology that I wouldn't quite agree with. They're not way off base, but I wouldn't quite agree with him. He holds to an already not yet view of the kingdom. He is a progressive dispensationalist. He is, I think, a little unclear on how he understands some of the gifts that have ceased, at least from what, some of the readings that I've done there. So he's got some some issues, and in talking to people like George Meisinger, John Niemela, and some other guys who ta- teach this through his book year after year after year, their conclusion is that he reads his theology into the grammar instead of grammar into the theology way too many times. So he ha- you have to use him very, very carefully. Now, when we get into this issue, this is an area of expertise for him. So I think on the one hand, he's pointing out a problem, and that is that a lot of pastors have taught that pastor and teacher must be grouped together because of the Granville Sharp Rule. And, But that's not the only reason. I would disagree. I, I have about a 
I have over a hundred commentaries on Ephesians in my Logos Bible software program. Plus, I probably have 15 or 20 others in print. Now, I have not gone through all of them. That I'm, I don't have enough time to do that. But I have skimmed through a lot of them to look for them. And I noticed that even some people he classified as arguing from Granville Sharp didn't. They argued on the basis of the men dead, never said anything about the article or Granville Sharp to argue that this last phrase is, is uh, grouped together. But let's get into this Granville Sharp rule a little bit and move on down. Granville made this observation as you read through the scriptures that there were times when you had two nouns connected by a conjunction, you know, like God and Savior, that had an article in front of the first noun but not in front of the second noun, and that in many of the cases, both of those nouns apply to the same person. Now, as I read in the title of his work, that it contained many new proofs of the divinity of Christ. What he realized was a lot of these had to do with key passages that were that demonstrate that the New Testament writers understood Jesus to be fully divine. That's, that's really the main theological issue. So he says, when the copulative chi connects two nouns of the same case, either a substantive or an adjective or a participle, of personal description respecting office, dignity, affinity, or connection and attributes, properties or qualities, good or ill, if the article ha or any of its cases precedes the first of the said nouns or participles and is not repeated before the second noun or participle, the latter, that is the second noun, always relates to the same person that is expressed or described by the first noun or participle, that is, it denotes a farther description of the first named person. Now, what's interesting there is that he's not saying that the two nouns, pastor and teacher, are synonyms, and they mean the same thing. He is saying that they both would, that it, but that, he, that, that the rule doesn't apply to that. But he would be saying, if it was applied, if it was correct, he'd be saying that those two refer to the same person. Like God and Savior both refer to the person of Jesus Christ. But he said there are exceptions this is what a lot of people miss and why it's mistaught as the Granville Sharp rule. He says, in other words, in the, and what that means is the article, noun, chi, noun, construction, the second noun refers to the same person mentioned with the first noun when. Three conditions have to be met. Neither noun is impersonal. Neither is plural. Now, in pastors and teachers, they're both plural, so this doesn't apply. Or neither is a proper name. Now, when you have God and Savior, God in English is a proper noun. God in Greek was not a proper noun. So we're dealing with Greek. We're not dealing with English. Okay? So what that means is when you have the phrase, the God and Savior, you have an article, then the noun God, and then the conjunction and, and then the noun Savior, both God and Savior refer to the same person. So that is showing that Jesus is viewed as God, fully God. It's a great argument for the deity of Christ. But the other problem we have with what Dan has taught is that people haven't read him well. They have said, oh, well, if it's not Granville Sharp, then they can't be referring to the same person. And that means you have not read your grammar clearly. 
Okay? He says, after stating these three requirements for the rule, for the rule to apply, Wallace then comments, when the construction meets three specific demands, then the two nouns always, remember whenever you see the word always, pay attention to it. It always refers to the same person. And a lot of people will stop there. And, and they don't realize, see, the opposite of this isn't never. The opposite is, is maybe or maybe not. He goes on to say, when the construction does not meet these requirements, the nouns may or may not refer to the same person or object. See, he's not saying that just because it's not Granville Sharp, that doesn't mean that they don't both apply to the same person. It says it may apply to the same person, but it may not apply to the same person. It isn't definitive as such. And then he goes on to say, in Greek, when two nouns are connected by chi, that's the conjunction and, when two nouns are connected by chi and the article precedes only the first noun, there is a close connection between the two. See, that's a primary sentence. When you have this kind of construction, those two nouns have a really close connection. They may not both be referring to the same person, but you can't separate or distinguish them as if they're two completely separate things. And he says that most people say they're either the same person or they're not at all. But there's two other options in between. Okay, so we have to read them closely. The connection always indicates at least some sort of unity between those two nouns. At a higher level, it may connote equality, and at the highest level, it may indicate identity or their synonyms. All right? Let me give you some examples. Mark 6, 3. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James? So we have two nouns, son and brother. They're governed by the one article in front of son, the son. But they have a conjunction between them and. So son and brother refer to the same person. Jesus is both the son of Mary and he is the brother of James, Joseph, and Judas and Simon. But son isn't a synonym for brother. It's just saying both of those refer to the same person. Hebrews 3.1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. Apostle and high priest describe the same person, but apostle and high priest are not the same thing, but they both apply to the same person. In 1 Peter 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, God and Father are not synonyms, but God applies to the first person of the Trinity and Father applies to the first person of the Trinity. They both refer to the same person. Now here it gets a little more sophisticated for we have two participles that are used as nouns. You who destroy the temple and build it. You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save it yourselves. They're talking to Jesus. See, who destroy and building are two opposite ideas. But destroying and building are both being applied to the same person. 
Okay, so that's the idea, is that these two nouns in this kind of a construction applies to the same person. Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great, and you have an article in the Greek, so it would be the God and Savior, no article in front of Savior, Jesus Christ. So God isn't a proper noun, so God and Savior both apply to Jesus Christ. Clear statement that he is deity. First Peter one, Second Peter one one does the same thing, same phrase, identical in the Greek, the God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, when you have pastor and teacher, two other ways that you can understand how those two nouns relate to each other is where the first group, pastors, is a subset of teachers. Now, that's what this is really saying: is that you have those who have the gift of teacher. There are some who have something in addition to that that is connected to their gift of teaching, and that is this aspect of pastor. Okay? I would look at this as an enhancement to the teaching aspect because not everybody who's a teacher, and there I have heard some fabulous teachers of Scripture, I've heard some women who are fabulous teachers of Scripture, but they don't have the gift of pastor-teacher to lead a congregation. And I know seminary professors who are great seminary professors. They're great teachers, but they're not really good at, at leading a congregation. So that's this example. The second example is where group one would be the pastor's, and then group two would be the, um, the subset of teachers. Now, this is exactly what we're, we're going to end up with is that first example. Now, we have to remember that in Romans 12, 6, and 7, there's a list of gifts there. Uh, there's prophecy that's listed there, prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith, Verse 7, or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. But see, there's no, no mention of pastor there. It's just teaching. So teaching is clearly stated in Romans 12, 6 and 7, to refer to a spiritual gift of teaching. And then second, the overlap in meaning between... Uh, the two, that is, pastor and teacher. Remember, I listed all those different things that one of the key ideas in pastoring is, is basically teaching. So that overlap in meaning between the two indicates that the difference between a pastor and teacher is in the area of leadership and guidance. Okay? Pa- when pastor is combined in that construction, it enhances teacher so that it is adding something to the teaching that relates to being a leader and and guiding and directing a congregation. That's what Dan Wallace says. He says, Thus, Ephesians 4.11 seems to affirm that all pastors were to be teachers, though not all teachers were to be pastors. What he's affirming is teaching operates as an independent gift, but pastor doesn't operate as an independent gift. It always is, is connected with teaching. Now, 
from long, not long before, but from probably a decade or so before I went to seminary, the head of the New Testament department at Dallas Seminary was a man by the name of Harold Honer. Harold was a wonderful man, except he voted for Jimmy Carter. And he was a great scholar in many areas, and he headed up the the, the doctoral uh, department, and he also headed up the Greek department, New Testament department, in which Dan Wallace worked to get his master's and his Ph.D., and for probably 40-plus years, uh, Harold Honer taught the book of Ephesians. A few year, He died eight or nine years ago, and before he died, a couple, two or three years before he died, he published what I consider to be the most extensive it's thicker than Dan's book, Commentary on Ephesians. Now, Honer knows everything, read everything and knows everything. He was, a, I think he would, may have even been a reader on Dan's dissertation, so it's not like he's ignorant of these things. In his commentary, oh, he also wrote the commentary. If you've got Bible knowledge commentary, Harold Honer, Harold wrote the commentary on Ephesians. It's there, okay? This is what he says. More likely, they, meaning these two terms, pastor and teacher, refer to two characteristics of the same person. This is at the conclusion of him going through all the same stuff on Granville Sharp. That they refer to two characteristics of the same person who is pastoring believers by comforting and guiding. How do you comfort and guide? It's with the word. While at the same time instructing them in God's ways, he says, overseers or elders are able to teach, 1 Timothy 3, 2, and Titus 1, 9. So that, that's very significant. He is not unfamiliar with this. So he says, oh, so back, we go back to our passage, and we see in this construction with the mendeh that what this is identifying is four groups. And that the last group connects these two nouns together, pastor and teacher. A.T. Robertson. Here's our Greek grammar from Dan. Dan has like four lines related to the Mendeck clause. Then we have A.T. Robertson's Greek grammar. It's a little more thorough. He identifies at least nine different ways in which the men-de construction is used. And and this is small print. i got to get better glasses. Fortunately, I have it in... I never use these books anymore because i got everything in Logos, which is a lot more usable. But A.T. Robertson also wrote a five-volume work called Word Pictures of the New Testament, which is a great work for, for non-technical people to get a little deeper into the Greek. I mean, one of the first sets of books I got when I started my library was Robertson's Word Pictures of the New Testament. He says there are four groups here. Tus men, tus de, three times as the direct object of the verb to give, which is etokin. Four groups. Now, th- this guy is not you know, some secondary figure in the study of Greek grammar. His name is huge. And he identifies for, and he never mentions the Granville Sharp rule. Okay? Then we have Henry Alford. That was another set I got. Alford's New Testament. 
Uh, Alfred, I think, was mid-19th century British scholar. He says, regarding the phrase, some as pastors and teachers, he says, from these latter, not being distinguished from the pastors, from the latter, meaning the teachers, not being distinguished from the pastors by the tus de, it would seem that the two offices were held by the same person. And see, he's, he too is looking at this, this men de construction. So, and then I have another work. I don't know too many people who have this. Tommy found it years ago, years ago. I found a used copy finally after I went to Connecticut and we came up with uh, something called the Internet. And Amazon had a used set. And this is a guy named Randolph Yeager, Southern Baptist. He ha- There's a foreword written in this, I think it's 17 volumes that he has, where he goes through and he lists every word in every verse in the Greek, identifies its part of speech and its usage, and then he writes a commentary on it, and it's in-depth. The foreword is written by a guy named Julius Manti. Now, Julius Manti co-authored a book on Greek grammar with another man named Dana. We always call it Dana and Manny. That book was the standard advanced grammar used in every seminary for teaching advanced grammar until Dan Wallace's book came along. So Julius Manti is a significant figure, and he says that this this whole set that uh, Jaeger wrote uh, is just phenomenal. Nothing like it exists in the English language. And this is what Jaeger says about it. He says, thus we have the four God-given types of ministers, not th- not five, four. And he doesn't go to Granville Sharp. It says, provided by Christ, the exalted head over all things to his church, which is his body. And it is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, through these human agents, that his fullness that filleth all by means of all will be realized in the body of Christ. Note that pastors... Poimenos, who are charged with the responsibility of shepherding the flock of God, are also charged with the function of Christian education, that is, teaching. He says, The pastor who is not academically qualified to teach the word can thus fulfill only one of his functions and is hampered even as a shepherd, since it is impossible to shepherd the flock of God without teaching them the word. Teaching is enjoined in the Great Commission of Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen to 20. The evangelist makes disciples. The, dis- the pastor immerses and teaches them. And then I couldn't resist adding this. He's got some great little comments. He says, it's notable also that deacons, treasurers, clerks, board members, trustees, stewards, custodians, choir directors, and ladies' aid presidents, not to mention the ladies who go around in circles, how many of you all have been to a Methodist church? They have women's Bible studies, and they're all organized in circles, and so that's what they're called. So he's very funny here. He says, None of them are included in the list of gifts which our Lord has given to the church. And he uses, instead of the phrase pastor hyphen teacher, he uses the phrase pastor slash teacher. So that's the other question. Why do we put hyphenate this? And and uh, 
see, he does this because he understands the significance of the Mendek construction, and he's using this to emphasize this unity between the two nouns, which Wallace uh, clearly affirms. So when we look at the hyphen, we have to recognize that in English, there's no set rule for hyphens. So I looked it up. I've got a couple of resource books for writing. One's called Fowler's Modern English Usage, which primarily talks about British usage. There's another fine book. I got the latest edition. It's huge. It's almost as big as Robertson's grammar called, and it's the bigger, the pages are bigger, called Garner's Modern American Usage. It's fabulous. This guy's really done some incredible work in He's one of these, he, he's, he's like a savant in grammar and has been since he was a little kid. How many fifth graders are writing grammars? Okay. So this is what, I thought this was interesting. This is what Fowler says he's, about hyphens. He says, no attempt will be made here to describe modern English usage in the matter of hyphens. Its infinite variety defies description. No two dictionaries and no two sets of style rules would be found to give consistently the same advice. There is, however, one principle, and then he goes on and and talks about it, that it's not just used as an ornament. Okay? So there's no set rules. Compound terms are those, uh, but he does make the statement, compound terms are those that consist of more than one word but represent a single item or a single idea. They come in three styles, and this is a quote from thepunctuationguide.com. So my conclusion is that it's because of the Mendek construction that groups these together in a very close unity. Probably the hyphen is the best way we have in English to express that kind of unity. And I have found a number of pastors. In fact, I was listening to one of my former Hebrew professors uh, on a lesson not too long ago, and he would differ also on some aspects related to our tradition. Uh, He comes out of a Baptist tradition, and then when he was working on his Ph.D., he started attending Anglican churches in England and has ever since been Anglican or Episcopal. But he consistently uses the phrase pastor-teacher. And he's probably, the, I would say, arguably the brightest, most intelligent grammarian that I studied under when I was at Dallas Seminary. So my, did everybody catch all that? Can you regurgitate that on a test? I've said that because this really isn't explained well. And I have questions from people who so say, why do we call it pastor-teacher? And the conclusion is, is that the text grammatically groups pastor and teacher together as a unit. I think both of these terms relate to the same person, that pastor is connected to teacher here in this particular gift to distinguish it from the gift of teacher. And what pastor adds, there's a lot of overlap between the two, but what the term pastor or shepherd adds to just being a teacher is this idea of leadership and guidance that is part of the gift for leading a congregation. 
So my conclusion is that pastor-teacher is an accurate and acceptable translation of the Greek idea, and that pastor really should not be used independently because it can lead to the misunderstanding of the importance of teaching to that gift, which is why we have a lot of churches in America who have pastors who may be good leaders, uh, they have leaders, let's put it this way, leaders in their congregations that may be good leaders, that may be good administrators, but they do not know how to teach. In fact, one of the uh, largest churches in America 20 years ago was a Willow Creek Church in Chicago. It was uh, just exploded long before Joel Osteen came on the scene. And they had at one point 300 pastors on their staff. And a, a doctoral student from Northwestern University uh, working at a degree in sociology went there. And one of the things he observed that of these 300 pastors on staff, A, not one of them had any formal training in scripture or theology. And B, not one of them owned a systematic theology. None of them, you know, for them, pastoring was involved a lot more of social stuff and community stuff and many other things. Yes, there was some teaching that was going on there, but but that wasn't a priority, whereas the Scripture puts that as a priority. So we'll come back next time because the elder bishop pastor has qualifications. So does a deacon. And so we'll look at those and begin to finalize our this little short study on the leadership in the church. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to uh, come to understand the emphases that are in Scripture on teaching that the role of the leader, leaders of the church and the leader of the church, the, the pastor, is to teach the congregation, to instruct them in what the Scripture means how it impacts our thinking, and how that impacts our lives. Father, we thank you for uh, the clarity of your word and that when we dig into it and study it, we do find specificity, and it's not just a lot of uh, uh, general random thoughts. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the significance of this, for if the leaders are to teach us, then we are to learn and apply. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.